Aloha, this is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, November 2nd. A wildfire on Oahu has burned more than 1,100 acres in Mililani-Mauka in just three days. We talk with the Army about how it's helping to battle the blaze and if it expects any effect on major training exercises that launched this week. The climate is changing, rethinking our strategies to counter the effects. How do we become more resilient? The city is unveiling its climate adaptation strategy and taking it around Oahu to get public input. A college student from Maui whose family was displaced by the wildfires shares her family story and contemplates her future in Lahaina. And the Office of Hawaiian Affairs has a new CEO. We'll learn more about the woman chosen to lead the organization. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The U.S. Army is helping to contain a wildfire that consumed some 1,100 acres in just three days. The blaze is in Midilani Mauka, and while it isn't threatening homes, it uh, could it impact military training? That just got underway. Colonel R.J. Garcia spoke with us yesterday while checking on drills at Dillingham Airfield. The airfield has been closed to the public as part of the military exercises. The fire is not on military land. It's said to be four miles away from any residential neighborhood, but it is spreading ash and smoke in both civilian and military communities nearby. The Army is currently providing two helicopters to help city and county firefighters. So right now we've been asked to provide aerial fire suppression assets, and we've been doing that in the form of one UH-60 Blackhawk helicopter and one CH-47 Chinook helicopter. Uh, the Blackhawk helicopter can carry a bucket underneath it of about 500 gallons, and the Chinook can carry a bucket of about 2,000 gallons underneath it. And so that's really all we've been asked to support. We're, we're all, always looking at other options, but so far HFD has the lead, and so we've been really uh, answering any requests to them, and it's only been helicopters thus far. The latest update you know, says that this fire is burning away from residential communities, but you know, how does that affect military property and all the exercises that you folks have got underway now? So that's a great question. Right now we do not see the fire, at least everything that we're getting and the projections that are being made is affecting any training in our military areas. But we're constantly watching it, and we're certainly very cautious as we move forward. I think it's important to note right now the fire is not on any military property. It's off of those properties. So, so we're, we're uh, continuing to look at it. I think that it's just important to note we're also infected just like everybody else in the Milani area. And so uh, we've had smoke and we've had some ash as well fly over, and, uh, and we're certainly affected just like everyone else, but it has not affected any training from either day-to-day operations or our big uh, exercise we've got going on right now. And the exercise is shutting down Dillingham Field, and that's where you're at right now. Describe what will be going on out there. Well, the good news is for everybody that we'll be shutting down our operations here at Dillingham within the next probably 24 hours, maybe maybe just a little bit longer. All of our training sort of has a script and sort of a design, and, and depending on how the leaders do and the actions they perform, you know, we either stay on plan or sometimes we have to delay to retrain. So we should be getting off of Dillingham here very shortly. But but really what Dillingham served is sort of the initial staging base for our forces. So they, they, they went through uh, a couple of gates to train in terms of evaluation of their equipment, the safety, uh, the preparedness of it. And we moved everyone to Dillingham so that we could then begin the planning phase and, and the assessments for follow-on operations. And so they stayed here at Dillingham about a week, and then they'll be moving on to various parts of the island uh, here on Oahu to the big island, the island of uh, Hawaii, and then we've even got some stuff that'll be going to uh, Palau, pretty far away, obviously, but we're going to Palau to do some exercises there as well. And I did get a release that said that uh, the public ought to be aware that they're going to probably see a lot of people jumping out of airplanes, I think, at Pakaloa and then in Alaska. Uh, so you're just kind of doing this mass drill everywhere. Yeah, we, we do use all of our resources everywhere, but we don't always use them all at the same time. So as an example, the airborne drop occurred on the island of Hawaii yesterday, 
It was about uh, 500 paratroopers that were based out of Alaska. Now they're on their way back. So they came in for a day, jumped in, and we were able to ex- execute some training with them there, and they're on their way back. We're at Dillingham now. We'll, we'll get off of Dillingham. Really, we try to get off as fast as we can, given Dillingham's location where it is, and then get to other training areas. So we're, while we're using, you know, people may think, oh, you're everywhere. We, we are operating everywhere, but not all at the same time. We surge in some areas and then shut it down and then go to other areas. And that really allows us to, to train like we fight uh, or we would fight potentially in a conflict. And that's to, you know, continue to move uh, around the areas, go where we're needed execute our operations and then and then move out to another place. So for the local communities, they'll probably see convoys going from one place to another. Yes, they're seeing them right now. In fact, I just drove out to Dillingham and so our convoys are, are coming out. It's important to note that we work with uh, the Hawaii Department of Transportation on our convoys and get clearance for all of them. And we, we actually only do convoys about 17 hours a day. We avoid uh, morning rush hour and evening rush hour traffic as well. We also consolidate our convoys to bigger convoys so that we don't have a bunch of small little ones out, but you know several big ones. We try to get in out of the way and then get to our training areas. Well, I, I have to ask because you know I'm not real sure on the type of training that you're doing, but maybe the community might be concerned just because of the drought conditions and the and the Midlani Malco wildfires. I mean, are you going to be doing any training with like live fire that might spark another wildfire somewhere else? Well, we certainly like to train in the most advanced ways we can and as aggressively as we can. I will tell you that we do safety reviews every night prior to the events the next day, and we look at the fire conditions, uh, really all the environmental conditions, but to the point of your question, the fire conditions in each area and what we can and cannot do. And I'll give you a great example. We reviewed yesterday that uh, there's a potential for us to train in in the Kahuku area, and that is... Uh, got a certain level of fire condition, and and so we restricted everything there except for blank fires. So blank fires are, you know, blank cartridges, what we put in our weapons. No round actually leaves, so there's no way for a hot round to go down and start a fire anywhere. It just makes a loud bang, and and it allows us to simulate, you know, our actions. So uh, I think uh, certainly as a member of the community, I'm very comfortable that we take the right safety precautions, and that I think other members of the community should feel the same way as well uh, and, and feel very comfortable that we take every day, day by day, and we evaluate the conditions and do what we call a running estimate for safety. And, you know, because we've just had this terrible disaster in Maui, you know, it has really made everybody reset. And I know last week you had a community tour out uh, to Kolikoli Pass, and Honolulu City Council member Angela Tapola, you know, said that there was just a shift in the conversation and the tone about the military's willingness to help the community in the event of an emergency if they needed to evacuate that, you know, you might. Yeah, that's correct. We, we had a great session with members of the Waianae Community Board, Nanakuli. We had Hawaii Emergency Management Agency there, Councilwoman, several of the senators and representatives from the area sent uh, representatives from their office. Uh, we also had the Navy there. And so, uh, you know, I think I think it's important to note and, and for the listeners, you know, the Coley Coley Pass Road is half of it is on the Army side, the Schofield Barracks side. Uh, half is on the Navy side, on the other side, you know, the, the Waianae side. And so we have a memorandum of, un- of understanding between state, county, and local agencies and the Navy and the Army to open the road for emergency vehicles and as well as uh, emergency evacuation if needed. And so really in a perfect world, look, you know, we'd all love the road to be open 24-7. It certainly is a convenient road, but there's there's just certain restrictions both on the Army and Navy side to that. And so the road is not necessarily in perfect condition. It's not used every day by us, um, but but it is maintained uh, uh, by both the Army and the Navy. And so there's no reason, you know, we, we agree, there's no reason in case of an emergency that we could not open that road. And so the basic process for that is for local officials to request to open it. And they have done that in the past. We've been very supportive. And, and then the Navy and the Army will coordinate to open their gates. And then really, we, we turn over access to the Y Emergency Management Agency. So, so they will deem what's required, and they're really in control at that point. We, we will certainly direct traffic on the areas we control you know, to help facilitate movement uh, over the pass if needed. As you mentioned, Councilwoman uh, Tupela is very familiar with it uh, and, in fact, gave some great vignettes where we have uh, done this before with really no no concerns from her and no delays. And, and a couple examples 
were uh, were car accidents that shut down the roads, and and we needed to get either uh, uh, families, you know, back into the Wyna area. I, I'll be honest with you. I thought it was more about taking people out of the area, and it could always serve that purpose. But she gave several examples where it was really getting access people back into Y and I or, or, or that area. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're teammates in this. We're, we're, uh, we feel very lucky to have such good teammates and, and really uh, working through uh, the next iteration of our memorandum of understanding between all the agencies and really trying to build on, you know, some of the lessons learned we got this past week just by talking through this process. One recollection that I had going through there, there was a landslide. You reopened it. And as I was driving through, just as we got to the end, you know, we got an email saying the road's closed again. There's been another landslide. So I was relieved that we didn't get hurt in that slide. But it just kind of shows that it it can be hazardous. I agree with you. It can be hazardous. I think it's important to remember that that the road is not uh, used every day. And the the road's, uh, I think, approaching 100 years old. Obviously, it's been it's been updated on the Army side, you know, for, for the listeners, it's completely asphalt all the way to everything we own up to our gate. However, we do have a repair we're going to be doing here on in, uh, this fiscal year of about $500,000 as a washout. And so we'll build, uh, we'll, we'll uh, maintain that road and, uh, and repair that road. On the Navy side, you know, their road is, uh, it's a different, uh, it's a gravel construction road. Um, it does have a bridge that failed a few years back that they've put in, and it's through uh, obviously some a very winding part of the area, and the terrain winds back and forth, or 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 demands that the road winds back and forth, and so there are some rock slides and and rock falls that occur. I, I give compliments to the Navy; they do clear all of them, and so it it probably you know if it was going to be for everyday use, we would certainly need to you know on both sides of the road make some some repairs. Mm-hmm. But I think for an emergency use. It's more than adequate and, and would certainly facilitate, um, you know, movement of people uh, from either side in a time of an extremis. Right. And and I think just the acknowledgement, you know, after what we saw with the wildfires in Maui, that the military's, you know, willing to uh, do their part to help the community. Of course. Of course. Our hearts go out to, to the families of Maui and, and, and all the folks there. And we have always approached, you know, everything we do here in Hawaii is you know, we are teammates and, and partners with, with everyone to really help everyone uh, in any way we can. And that was Army Colonel R.J. Garcia, who we talked to yesterday afternoon. Uh, he was addressing the current fire threat and the recent decision by the military to allow Kolekole Pass to be open in the event communities on Oahu's west side need access in an emergency rather than just limiting it to emergency vehicles. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat uh, looks at what lawmakers are facing when it comes to addressing our wildfire risk. Uh, Politics editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so, you know, this risk factor, it's on everybody's mind. Yeah, it sure is. So the the House of Representatives just yesterday finally came out uh, with their recommendations on, on what the legislature should do uh, come 2024, right? They'll be back in session in January. Largely, the response to the fires has been at the federal level, the county level, uh, obviously the governor and his team involved. But here the legislature has a role to play. And so what we had come out yesterday was six separate reports, draft reports saying, here's some ideas and what we should do to not only prevent uh, these wildfires from happening, to, but to also address what happens if they do and, and, and what to do. It's sort of a roadmap uh, for next session to get these bills, uh, these appropriations to the governor for consideration. I should just point out this is just from the House, not from the Senate. The Senate uh, is doing its own due diligence. We'll hear from them perhaps later. But for now, these are ideas coming from the House. Bold action is what they are calling for. Well, you know, certainly I think it's a chance for everybody to look and see, yeah, where are our vulnerabilities? They are plenty. And uh, I mean, there's, of course, some of this stuff we've already heard. Should we be undergrounding the, the power lines? That's something that we think about. Should there be greater public awareness about how easy it is to, to ignite a fire and, and how, to, of course, 
to control that from happening. You know, what the House did is it's all 51 members, by the way, Republicans and Democrats. It's bipartisan. And these several groups work on a number of issues. Uh, schools was one of them. Here's some concerns about air quality for those schools that are reopening in West Maui. What about escape routes? There's concern that that hasn't been clearly marked as well. It's interesting what they did is th- these reports actually include a lot of footnotes, and they cite other research like UHERO, um, federal organizations, a lot of news clips as well. Uh, Civil Beat, uh, Life Public Radio, I think, is featured, Star Advertiser. So they really did their homework seeking out other voices to try and come up with a plan. Uh, so it's kind of nice to see that, if you will, that integration. <laughs> They're getting, they got out of their office. They went, they talked to people, mm-hmm. they surveyed people, they listened to stakeholders uh, to put together these pretty thoughtful ideas. I had to chuckle, though, when they said, oh, yep, limits on fireworks. I'm like, oh, how long have we been talking about that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Good luck with that one. I mean, I mean, but of course, it's very obvious when you think about fireworks coming down in this in this very dry areas where it's really a tinderbox in so many ways. But I agree with you. I'm not going to hold my breath that we'll have much action on fireworks control. Um, you know, some of the things in the report are a little bit vague. They they don't really identify a whole lot of cost places where the state can spend money. I'm assuming that will be coming forth in legislation in the budget. But they are clearly hoping to bolster uh, the major state agencies uh, and others that are involved. I should say some of the, the ideas they have are just flat-out common sense. I mean, you know, shouldn't you maybe make sure that the food banks have more capacity, right? That's something you want to do uh, because obviously people are going to lose all their food. Uh, and another idea is let's develop child care services in West Maui so those parents can get to work. So a lot of them are just, you know, common sense the question is the money. Is there going to be the money for it as well as the, the will to pass these things? Well, you know, I, I know your uh, article also provides a graphic uh, that really lays out the the areas that are prone to fires. You know, it's kind of a ring of red around here. It really time. is, and, and it's all the islands. I know we've all been talking about West Maui. You were just on, on the phone talking about uh, Waianae, another area. Obviously, what happened in Mililani recently, uh, this is really the whole state, but uh, some areas far more than others. You know, there's even talk in these reports about maybe restoring wetlands, uh, habitats in the area on West Maui and others. There is a recognition that there is a public trust doctrine for both land and water, uh, a sense that we need to, you know, take care of not just the humans, but also the, the ecosystem, the animals, the plants that are part of the whole system. I think one other thing I would add, Catherine, is there's also recognition in these reports that these problems are longstanding, and it takes a thing like a wildfire to really bring them into focus. Unfortunately, that housing cost remains one of the biggest barriers to clear. Remember, Hawaii, on average, housing here is 2.7 times more than the national average. I guess that's not any news. Everybody knows that. <laughs> right, right. And we should probably point out that uh, so this blueprint, they're going to take it around to uh, get public input. So, uh, well, yeah. Right, that's this yeah. month, and then right. there'll be a final draft in December ahead of the session in January. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was uh, po- politics editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read the story at civilbeat.org. Afghanistan is rich in mineral deposits, copper, gold, zinc, and iron. Now the Taliban government is hoping to sell these resources to countries like China. If they were to make deals with Chinese companies, that would be a big step in the direction of legitimacy for them. Afghanistan taking its natural resources to market next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. With mortgage rates where they are, which is to say hi, this is a tricky time to be in the business of buying and selling homes. It's almost a bit unnerving how remarkably quiet the market is right now. I'm Kai Rizdal, one real estate agent out west in Missoula, Montana. And what's going on there? We'll tell you next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Hotter temperatures 
less rain and rising sea levels. That is the reality of climate change. The city and county of Honolulu has drafted a blueprint to deal with future impacts and wants your input, much like the House is doing. Matt Gonzer is Oahu's chief resilience officer. He talked with the Conversations Russell Subiano about mapping our strategy to deal with the changes to come. Climate adaptation is really all about acknowledging that we've already experienced changes in our local environment and our local climate. And because of human-caused climate change as a result of burning fossil fuels and the carbon pollution and other emissions that are in the atmosphere, we are aware and certain that the environment will continue to change in different ways and for different um, hazards, different consequences for people around the island, the environment of those places, and for the services and infrastructure that we have as local government. So climate change adaptation is really all about taking proactive early investments, moves, actions, et cetera, to prepare ourselves for the near, mid, and maybe even long-term changes that we see over the horizon and that the science is quite clear about where we're going into the near term. So, you know, the work of the city has not necessarily waited for a consolidated climate adaptation strategy, but really this Climate Ready Oahu document is the city's first ever compilation of a narrative and a vision of what we can do to prepare ourselves for tomorrow across a variety of climate hazards that include sea level rise, increasing temperatures and extreme heat, more extreme rainfall, very heavy rain events, but also prolonged periods of drought and the consequences of that. And then science recently just put out from the University of Hawaii reminding us that more extreme tropical cyclones and hurricanes are coming earlier in the season because of increased ocean temperature and increased air temperature, which fuel those hazards. So looking at the risk and the, the likelihood and the consequence of any of these hazards, we were out in community over the last two and a half years, really meeting people where they're at in terms of their understanding, their concerns, but also their vision and their hope for how they can even take action in the household or individual scale. So that's what we're here to do. Climate Ready Oahu is to communicate what we understand about the challenges, but to also be clear-eyed, open, and honest about what we can do and what we need to do to address those risks moving forward. And you just mentioned that you were out in the community and you were gathering input from the community as you were putting together this strategy. I imagine that the strategy details a lot of what the city is planning on doing to adapt to climate change. What about the communities and individuals? What can they do? Is there a part of the strategy where, you know, we as individuals, we need to also learn how to adapt as well? The vision of Climate Ready Oahu is really in three parts. And that includes prepared and empowered people, stewarded and safeguarded aina, and safe and reliable infrastructure. Because it really is about the people in these places, as I mentioned before, the changes to the environment, and maybe even how we can make those environmental systems or those natural and cultural resources even more robust so that they can help buffer us against impacts and changes tomorrow, but also ensuring that the city's services and both private and public infrastructure continues to support thriving communities into the future. And across those three parts of the vision, there's a dozen strategies, and these are really high-level, likely evergreen principles that we know maybe will never be accomplished in full, but they really help communicate and make clear different ways that we can all stay committed to driving effective implementation to address climate hazard risks. And within the actions, there's even where we were able to sections that include, quote unquote, actions you can take. So to your specific question, government can't do climate adaptation on our own, business can't do it on its own, and you and us as residents and individuals and households also can't do it on our own. So we wanted to make sure to uplift and empower and encourage individual and household actions through this segment all across and spread throughout the Climate Ready Oahu document, focusing on actions you can take. And really, you know, we have a theme spread throughout and it surfaces early. You may be familiar with the city bird of Honolulu, the Mano Oku, the white tern, it has actually proven to be quite adaptable to 
changes in our local environment. It's proven successful in a very dense urban environment. It's found ways to make do and live and thrive in our evolving climate and in our evolving physical environment here locally. And that's the theme that we pepper all throughout Climate Ready Oahu to focus in on those actions you can take to even remind ourselves that yes, when change is coming to our shoreline, we also need to do things, but we can do them when we feel empowered and are aware of the actions that we can take. I know many of us, we, we already are seeing the impacts of sea level rise with shoreline slowly creeping inland. And we all know how important access to the beach and shoreline is for many Hawaii residents for a multitude of reasons. One statement that I've seen on your website is adaptation strategies can include allowing beaches to be beaches. What does that mean and how does it fit into climate adaptation strategies? Yeah, so that notion of allowing beaches to be beaches is is a reminder that they themselves as ecological natural systems have their own methods for adjusting to change over time. And when there is room and when there is more sand available, that beach can persist with sea level rise and with erosion if it's allowed to capture and grab some of that back shore sand to replenish the beach that perhaps is eroding. That might be possible in locations around the island that might not be possible depending on the soil and the geology of that area, but it's partly a recognition that we've unfortunately hardened quite a bit of our shoreline. We also have extremely constructed shorelines all around the South Shore. Waikiki Beach, as we know it today, is not a natural environment in any way, shape, or form. So these different strategies around conservation of beaches in certain areas, beach management in different areas, and just seeing where community's at in terms of thinking about the perpetuation of, as you mentioned, access to the shoreline and recreational resources from the beach as well as subsistence resources along the shoreline. And one thing the strategy is anticipating is extreme heat and reduced precipitation, which means we could potentially end up with increased opportunity for brush fires and impacts like we've seen on Maui. If we expect temperatures to get hotter and rainfall to become less frequent, how does this strategy address adapting residential, commercial, and environmental demand for water? Yeah, that's a a very layered question and very astute assessment that even though Climate Ready Oahu doesn't identify wildfire or urban wildland interface risks as a top climate hazard, those other trends that you mentioned in terms of increasing temperature, which also increases evapotranspiration, right? Plants and, and, and ground cover releasing more of their water to the atmosphere, in essence, drying themselves out in conjunction with already recorded decrease in rainfall over time and variable conditions projected into the future, depending on the side of the island, windward or leeward. Those are the kinds of things that could additionally fuel wildfire risk. But additionally, as you mentioned, really those are the the sources of our drinking water, right? We're majority or nearly 100% dependent upon groundwater resources here on Oahu within the the Aina category or part of Climate Ready Oahu, as well as the safe and reliable infrastructure, you'll see different approaches, strategies, and actions to think about making sure we're only using precious, fresh drinking water for precious, fresh drinking needs, looking at increasing recycled water, looking at potentially even different sourcing of water. The Board of Water Supply is currently looking at the development of a small-scale desalination plant out at Campbell Industrial Park, because those kinds of uses and users don't necessarily, for all of their needs, require precious potable water. So really looking across the whole of the system, understanding that there's changes to the the water cycle, as well as the environment that we need to depend upon to bring that water into the ground. That's all part and parcel and weave throughout. And it's really important that we continue to communicate that so that Really, we we have an understanding of where we need to go and can continue to build coalitions and commitments to take action. Matt Gonzer, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Russell. And that was the city's chief resiliency officer, Matt Gonzer, talking with HBR's Russell Subiano about the new climate adaptation strategy for Oahu.
The public can comment on the plan at any one of the in-person and virtual events scheduled this month. The first will be at the Kailua Farmers Market today. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Researchers once asked members of Alcoholics Anonymous to describe their last drink. One participant felt like the last drink for him really symbolized the low point, and it was the moment when he committed to really turning his life around. How the stories we tell about our lives shape our lives. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following Living on Earth. What makes The Real Housewives a cultural institution? We descended into the depths of the Bravo convention to find out. This is my Comic-Con. <laughs> we hear from a Bravo producer. If you want to be the villain, I'm ready to rock out. And the housewives themselves. I am talent, but I'm God's talent. To understand why The Real Housewives is peak culture. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Kiana Villamar was born in Maui and raised on Lahaina Luna Road. She's the daughter of Filipino immigrants who came to pursue a better life. She's a first-generation college student at Scripps College in California. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked to Villamar about her memories of Lahaina and questions that she has about home, displacement, and belonging. My parents immigrated here over 20 years ago. My mom, my dad, my sister and they essentially came with nothing on their backs in hopes to give me and my younger brother uh, and my sister as well a better life here in the United States in terms of education and more job opportunities. And so we, re we resided in Lahaina Luna Road. It's pretty much in, in the heart of Lahaina. And I believe the population there is majority Filipino, Filipino-American, um, low-income people of color. You know, the immigration story were how they came here. It's, I think about it every single day because I hold the title of being a first-generation college student and being the daughter of two immigrants. And so all the time, I feel like I'm pulled either which way between my family and my education. And as a daughter of two immigrants, I can imagine that They've never really felt like they belonged where they were. And similar to me growing up in Lahaina for the past 18 years, I didn't truly feel like I ever belonged, especially I, I went to an all-white preparatory high school, and I was the top 1% of all the diversity there was at the school. And so I never really felt like I could connect with any one of my peers on any personal experiences, whether that be financial or whether that be experiences about my identity or how I would feel about problems at home, I could never really connect with anyone around me. And so it was hard. It was tough. And I've always grew up with the whole idea that I was never going to go to college because I knew from a very young age that if I were to go to college, it would be a huge financial burden on my parents. And so initially my goal was to stay at home in Maui and work to support my family, my grandparents, my parents, and hopefully that my brother would become the first to graduate college. But as I reflected back in high school, either I, either I go to college, either I attend Scripps College or I don't and that I would stay back home and work for the rest of my life. And so I applied to essentially one college and I got in. Miraculously I got in. Hooray and that was hooray, yes. That was that was my telltale sign that I, I should be in college and that I should prioritize my education. And that's exactly what I did. And to this day 
although I am still in college, I still feel a sort of guilt about leaving my family back home while I'm in California. I haven't seen them in over a year now, so especially since the fires have happened, there's this psychological distance that I could never seem to overcome. So tell me, so you spent your whole life growing up in Maui, but you were in public school and then you were in a private school, but there were plenty of Filipinas. So so tell me a little bit about your social dynamic growing up when you were younger. Were you involved with the Filipino community? Um, were they all first-generation community members from a similar village or island in the Philippines? Yeah, so I felt most in touch with the Filipino community while I was in middle school. I went to Lahaina Intermediate School, and it was even hard um, staying in touch with the Filipino community there because many of my friends could barely speak English. And I... I, I'm fluent in understanding, but I'm not fluent in speaking, so already there is that language barrier. And on top of that, my school had a lot of students who would look down on the Filipino community and call them really offensive slurs, like fresh off the boat, and mock the way they would speak and mock the way they would be able to understand English and more or less learn in English as well. And because of that, I didn't really have a great bond with any Filipino members in my school. There was a huge barrier in terms of language and in terms of being afraid to be called those stereotypes as well. I, I couldn't speak Ilocano or Tagalog fluently, and so I didn't have the accent that they had. But since they had the accent, they were the ones targeted, and I was not. And that entire barrier between us. I, I couldn't understand what they would go through and they couldn't understand me. And so I've just always felt isolated and I never felt like I could be a part of the community that I so ever so wanted to be a part of. Reflecting about this community, what do you see as their needs? Tell me a little bit about the story of your own family's journey within this community with the fire and whatever has followed. In our community, my parents had a lot more friends. Um, I, I would call them uncles or my aunties, even though they weren't really blood related to me. That's kind of what I would just call my Filipino parents as friends. And it was great because I felt truly comfortable to be around any of them, whether it be 11 o'clock walking around at night, I, I knew I was safe and I knew I was comfortable. And that's something that I admire so greatly about the Filipino community back in Maui. And it's absolutely heartbreaking because now when I think about life back home, it's, it's life back home before the fires and life back home after the fires. And on my street, a lot of, a lot of lives were lost and my, my family, unfortunately, knew many people who were lost. And just thinking about my parents and how they're in their mid-50s and how they're going to have to start over a whole new life with a whole new social scene and whole different friends and a whole new community, that's absolutely heartbreaking. Because as immigrants, I feel like we need to do a sort of extra push to even fit into a new community, leaving back our old ones. And now that... Lahaina has just been ripped apart from so many people's lives. It'll never be the same, and maybe we'll have a new house in the next 10, 15 years, but the trauma will continue to be there, and there's no way of getting rid of it. Thinking about your place within the narrative of Maui, do you see yourself as returning there? What are the complications of going back? or of, of leaving, as you yeah. are right now on the mainland, right? Mm -hmm. I haven't been home in almost two years, and I plan to go back home in December. And I, I wasn't there to physically experience the fires and what has happened, and that's something that I'll never be able to understand, the perspective of my family who has experienced it. And 
I've I've seen the images online and I've seen terror of everything burnt and the dead birds and animals on the floor. I've seen it all online, but it's never going to be the same as seeing it in person. And that's not something I can prepare for necessarily. And so when I go back home in December, I, I imagine myself breaking down and crying because back home I've, I've memorized pretty much every single turn to get to my house, every single street sign and, and miles per hour sign and stuff like that. And I memorize all these things out of rage because I failed my first driving test there. But ironically, <laughs> it's, it's something that I, I always will remember. And my parents send me photos of our home that was burnt down. And I can't even tell what, what the kitchen is or what the mailbox is or what our, our living room is. And it's, it's, it's awful. I thinking to, I don't know if I'll live there ever in the future. All I can say is that I'm, I'm grateful that my parents are alive, but given the trauma that my parents have experienced, I'm not sure whether they want to live there either. It's, it's definitely a hot zone for fire and hurricanes, especially during the July and August months. There's always going to be hurricanes and possibly fires as well. And I don't think my parents or my family can keep going back to the same spot knowing hey, my, my house could very well get burned down again. Let's, let's pre- prepare for the trauma that'll happen again. I don't think we're going to do that anymore. So do you think then that they would leave for the mainland? I would say my parents are really attached to the community and really attached to the land. They immigrated to Hawaii, and so it's always going to be a place of comfort for them. I, I imagine they would move somewhere else on the on the island, maybe in upcountry or go to Oahu. I have family as well in Oahu on my on my dad's side, so I imagine maybe they could live there as well. But Lahaina will always be near and dear to our hearts. But I don't think that they could be put through that trauma again because I feel like I've taken for granted how comfortable our life was in Lahaina, the security of it all, how beautiful it was every single day. But I forgot that maybe the sun wouldn't rise the next day. And that's something that I'll always be cautious of now. My eyes are so wide open. And that I I urge my family to move somewhere else on the island towards upcountry so that this wouldn't happen again and they wouldn't have to relive that trauma anymore. Right. What is it that you think people should know about the Maui of the past? And what are some of your dreams that you have for the Maui of the future? I, I would want people to know that the Maui of the past is all built on community. And I remember going street to street, whether it's 7 a.m. or 11 p.m., I would say hi to anyone on the street and they would say hi to me back. And it's the kindness that is always returned by the people that will always linger with me forever. It was such an amazing and beautiful and soft and genuine place where seemingly nothing ever went wrong. And the worst thing that could happen was a rainy day. And so truly it was a peaceful and magnificent place to live and start a family and create a future all built on the idea of security and a happy life. And for the future, I don't know where my parents will live and I don't know how the rebuilding process is going to look like, but I know that the community will always be strong and that's not something that could ever be taken away from us, whether it's from large corporate companies trying to buy the land and try to repurpose it into more hotels and bigger Airbnbs. I know that the people will always fight for what is theirs, given the history of Hawaii being illegally annexed and overthrown and constantly taken advantage of for its resources. I know that 
people around the world now have seen what has happened to Maui and have opened their eyes and that they're not going to let any more annexing or any more overthrowing going on because the land truly belongs to the people and it'll always remain like that. That was Kiana Villamar talking to HBR Stephanie Hahn about growing up in Lahaina. Her family is now sheltering in a hotel where one of her parents works, a hotel that is also 100% occupied by tourists. Her family is worried they do not know where they will be next month and cannot afford current rental prices. Villamar remains committed to finishing her college degree. Today on The Daily, the mass shooting that occurred in Maine last week was the country's deadliest of the year. It may also have been one of the most avoidable. Why so many warnings about the suspected gunman from so many people failed to stop it. I'm Mike Barbaro. That's Today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. On the next Fresh Air, the New Yorker's Jonathan Blitzer talks about the chaos surrounding the next Speaker of the House. We'll also talk about Jim Jordan, who lost his bid as Speaker, but remains the head of the powerful Judiciary Committee and is heading up controversial investigations. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. The Office of Hawaiian Affairs has a new chief executive officer. Stacey Ferreira was recruited for the job out of more than 500 people who applied. HPR reporter Kuve Hirishi is here to tell us more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. It is official. Just about an hour ago, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, or two hours at this point, OHA Board of Trustees publicly acknowledged they've chosen Stacey Ferreira, former budget chief over at uh, Senate Ways and Means Committee to serve as its next CEO. Uh, she's replacing Sylvia Hussey, who left the agency uh, back in July. Uh, Stacy and Kealohalani Ferreira, she hit the ground running. She's already in the position as of yesterday, Wednesday. Uh, born and raised on Oahu, she now calls Kaka'ako home. You know, my family traces our, our Mo'opu'aho back about 17 generations, and our ohana spans Moku'oke'ave, Maui, Moloka'i, O'ahu. But a majority of our Upunui ohana is in Lahaina, Maui. You know, I'm a mom, I'm a, I have Mo'opuna, and I have three daughters who, uh, two, unfortunately, are living on the continent. So, you know, a, a lot of the work that I, I see before me is making sure we can get our Hawaiians home including my own ohana. So Ferrera comes to Oha from the state legislature where she has spent the last four years as budget chief, as we mentioned earlier. Here she says she's gained the legislative acumen and, and forged those relationships uh, within the ledge, but also uh, with the executive branch that will serve her as CEO. Prior to the legislature, she spent a little more than two decades in education, first at Leeward Community College, where she pioneered distance learning efforts, and more recently at Kamehameha Schools, where she worked mainly in extension education services, so uh, serving uh, those Native Hawaiian students outside of the classrooms on campuses. Uh, but when asked about her priorities, uh, Ferrara says OHA's 15-year strategic plan, Manai Mauliola, is priority number one to ensure OHA has the resources uh, needed to implement that plan. She aims to forge those partnerships where she can leverage outside resources uh, to accomplish what OHA needs to. You know, this is a pivotal time for OHA. They're understaffed. Uh, I think about 30 per 29 or 30 percent vacancies right now of what's wow. needed to be filled. And that's something that's top of mind for her. But she's, um, you know, they're also fighting for their fair share of public land trust revenues. And uh, they're headed into this next legislative session with that cloud over their heads from last session when their plans for Kaka'ako fell through. Well, Hakuone is, is going to move forward. You know, there is a definite um, commitment by the trustees and the administration to make sure that we are the best land stewards um, and caretakers of, of that 
of that AINA, um, that we are able to generate revenues. So if we can't do it all, and, and it's unlikely that we're going to be able to do everything in the master plan that we'd like. And so at this point, it's going to say, you know, what are the things that we can accomplish now? And what can we get revenues on now? Because we don't want to leave, you know, the, the AINA just sitting. So she did mention the idea of moving forward with commercial development of the area and maybe still working out the residential um, issue on the side, uh, but making sure that they're getting some money return on the, on their investment. Right, because the housing part has been the the sticky point. Yeah, has been the sticking point. So uh, Ferrara says, you know, she didn't apply for the position. Uh, she was recruited by Kumabe HR, the contractor hired by OHA to complete the executive search. As you mentioned, the company received 550 applications for the position. And interestingly, 94% uh, came from outside of That's Hawaii. That's really high. Right? Uh, Ferrara was uh, one of the four finalists for the position, though. Shortlist included OHA's former interim CEO, Colin Kippen, uh, Department of Hawaiian Homelands Government Relations Manager, Lehuakini Laokano, and former Bishop Museum Executive Kaivi Yoon. OHA trustee Brickwood Galateria says the decision wasn't easy. He said the short list of candidates were top shelf, uh, but what stood out to him was Ferrara's legislative acumen and understanding of the nuances and complexities of state government. Stacy is, I think, what the Office of Hawaiian Affairs needs at this moment. She brings a new energy. She's work in government, so she understands the state capital. She certainly understands the state budget, having been the budget chair for Ways and Means for the past several years. She understands the bureaucracy, which is something that certainly OHA over at the Capitol must be present to win. We got to get some wins under the belt. And so having someone who understands that is good. The executive selection process wasn't without its critic, mu- uh, critics. Much of the deliberation, including interviews, board votes, uh, were made in executive session, which is not uncommon, right, in these executive searches, but for a state agency whose effectiveness depends on that ability of the Native Hawaiian community to trust it, this was difficult uh, for folks like uh, Helene Sonoda Pale with the Kalahui Hawaii Political Action Committee, who says, you know, uh, she would uh, have wanted more of a say in the process. And so Ferreira says, you know, she was disappointed to hear that uh, folks were critical of her decision. She said, I worked for this, and she's uh, looking over, immersing herself in everything, OHA, uh, to be ready uh, for this coming session. Yeah, well, uh, lots of challenges ahead. Exactly. Yeah, and and it'll be exciting to see. You've got Hakuone, you've got uh, public land trust revenues, the $600 million trust that they oversee. Lots uh, of action sure to be had. All right, well, thank you so much. Uh, We've been talking to HBR's Kuve Hirishi. You can read her story on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Something floating in the air. It hits you like a melody you long to hear. The presence of aloha dancing everywhere, everywhere. There's nothing like a flower lay. The fragrance of a home and a warm embrace. So let it take you high and your breath away. That is it for us today. Up tomorrow. We talk about healing with the host of the popular program, Hidden Brain. We do welcome feedback. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? You can find the conversation segments on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.